Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Today we're in our part two discussion on the Netflix Cleopatra docuseries. Hopefully you all listened to part one. And we are now here with our part two, with our two special scholars on race and ethnicity in the ancient world and the reception thereof. Here today, we have Professor Rebecca Futo-Kennedy and Dr. May Mosia. Rebecca Futo-Kennedy, an associate professor in classical studies at Denison University. Her research focuses on the political, social, and economic history of ancient Athens, histories of immigration, citizenship, race, ethnicity, women and gender in the ancient Mediterranean, and the reception of antiquity in modern identity formation. She is the co-author of Race and Ethnicity in the Classical World and the Handbook of Identity and the Environment in the Classical and Medieval Worlds, as well as the author of Immigrant Women in Athens, uh, published in 2014. She's currently completing a book on race and ethnicity in the ancient world and its modern politics for John Hopkins University Press. Hurrah, and is beginning a new textbook on the under, on understanding race and ethnicity in antiquity with Professor Jackie Marie for Rutledge. Um, Professor Kennedy is deeply engaged in teaching and public scholarship. You might have run across her her blog, um, and she advocates for more critical understanding of gender and race in antiquity and the misuses of the past and present. And Dr. Muzia is an ancient historian and a public engagement specialist. She's been a key voice in the UK for engagement with the humanities for over a decade. And in 2019, May graduated with a PhD in ancient history from Swansea University, where her thesis investigated the representation of the other in Greek and Roman literature. Her current research focuses on race and ethnicity in the ancient world. And she is also interested in medieval manuscripts, particularly from Ethiopian Eritrean traditions. She's also passionate about exploring the interconnectivity between the ancient Mediterranean and Northeast Africa. May has also had a number of speaking engagements at higher education institutions, schools, and other community groups. And you might find some of her lectures, workshops on radio, TV, YouTube as well. Um, she's a trustee for Classics for All, a national campaign to get classical literature, classical languages, and the study of classical civilizations back into state school, which is really awesome. She enjoys discussing the relevance of the ancient world in the modern world, particularly issues of decolonization and repatriation, which are all very important for our discussion today. So I would like to welcome you both to the podcast and thank you for joining us. It's great to have you both here. I want to dive in quickly and ask for your initial takes on the Cleopatra debate that's going on. Were you surprised that people were so upset? What was your initial, you know, opinion on this, on the ongoing saga? So I'll say first that I was not surprised at the anti-Blackness that was exhibited when the trailer dropped. It's expected, I think, at this stage, whenever a Cleopatra emerges, there's going to be a controversy over it. And particularly when there's a Black Cleopatra, of course, with the exception of the old one, uh, uh, Zena, the warrior princess, she sort of flew under the radar, but. 
but this what I knew was going to be controversial. What I was surprised at, however, is how aggressive the Egyptian government <laughs> has decided to be about this because it's not it doesn't make them look very smart or knowledgeable about their own past. But I think putting it into perspective a little bit with the ongoing fight between Egypt and Greece over whether she was Egyptian or Greek maybe helps to make a little bit more sense of it. But I, I was, I have been quite surprised by their sort of over the top, I would say, aggressive position over the show. My, my, what do you think? Well, as Rebecca said, it wasn't a surprise. Initially, I, was, I thought, oh gosh, you know, an eye roll about yet another Cleopatra film. And it certainly will cause controversy. And, you know, I, I, I try and stay out of these sort of things, particularly on social media, because there's, inevitably it's going to bring so much backlash. What I wasn't really prepared for was that the, when I retweeted Catherine's and Rebecca's brilliant article on it, of, you know, the, the, the lack of engagement with the article. So I had quite a lot of racist responses to my tweet, which was, you know, that I was trying to stay out of it as much as I could, but the fact that there has been so much anti-blackness that I felt as a person of color, but also in a world of classics where there are very, very, very few, you know, people of color in our discipline that I think it was really important to actually try and engage and sort of talk about these issues on a, a big platform like Twitter. But knowing what Twitter is like, I, I did it with such hesitant and um, true to form. The reaction was to my tweet with regards to anti-blackness and not to the actual article, which was extremely, very, very articulate in in foregrounding the sort of myth and reality and, you know, trying to come to terms as, a, as we actually do scholars with the evidence that we have, with the sources that we have. So the kind of responses that I had were just horrendous in some ways. Some responded with things like Africans don't have anything to contribute to civilizations, anything below the Sahara. And this is something that I would like to come back to this, this term of sub-Sahara and what have you is very much, you know, devoid of any civilization. And this idea of anti-blackness, what do you mean about anti-blackness? It's not anti-blackness if you, you know, getting the story right and Cleopatra was not black woman, imagine casting a white Greek lady to play Michelle Obama in a documentary and, and, and things like that. And then you had to sort of, would you respond to that way if somebody played, if, if a black person played Tarzan, for example, and, and, and all those things. And then you had Samuel Jackson's superimposed picture on Colin Farrell's Alexander the Great. And, you know, so it kind of escalated. So it wasn't just the really kind of responses the wording, but it was the imagery. It was the actual imagery that was portrayed in response to this article. So I was extremely and ex extremely shocked. But, you know, again, this isn't the first time I've been involved in a backlash with respect to trying to talk about the complexity and the multiculturalism of the ancient worlds. I tend to talk a lot about the Persians because it's something that I've written a lot about in my PhD, 
And the amount of backlash with response to that, it was extraordinary. So I'm no stranger to that. But what I was really astonished by is actually the Egyptian government's response to, to this and how disappointed as an, as an official body that they came out with the response that they did, but in such a way to make you think, well, they would like to distance themselves from Africa, but hey, you know, if you look at a geography, <laughs> they are in Africa. I'm sorry to tell you, Egypt is in Africa. So, you know, there's that. Um, but yes, as Rebecca has pointed out, it's um, more of the Egyptian official response I was particularly disappointed at. So can I jump in? Because a lot of people listening might be thinking, well, it's a Netflix documentary about Cleopatra and everyone's freaking out and I don't understand. So can each of you <laughs> hit upon what what is, because it's obviously not just a Netflix documentary on Cleopatra. There's much more right. going on. And it's so complicated and so much swirling around it. But as specialists in this field and of this place and of this antiquity and who owns it, how what are the underlying larger political and social issues that, that we're dealing with? What is it touching off? How is it a part of something that's that's much larger, much bigger? This is a, it goes back to the 19th century, <laughs> particularly with Cleopatra itself. But I think, you know, Mai pointed out that she got responses that were like, oh, you know, what has Africa contributed to civilization? That's a very long discourse that has been happening for a very long time. It goes well back into the 19th century. Another phrase that we sort of can put out there that needs to be um, reconsidered is this concept of Western civilization. Um, it's not a, it's not a, an actual thing that goes back to antiquity. It's a construction of the 19th century. And, and in fact, um, it's a very late construction. We don't really even see it emerge as a commonly used thing until the 20th century a phrase. But part of the, the construction of that concept involved the removal of or attempts to erase and push out Africa. And so it has a very long history of being part of the discourses. What has Africa ever contributed to civilization? And just, um, just to interrupt really quickly, because no yeah. one seems to get upset that Elizabeth Taylor of British Isles Extraction yeah. is playing Cleopatra yeah. as white as white could be. And certainly, well, I would Egyptian. say I would say Greeks didn't like it first. <laughs> OK, um, the Egyptians aren't freaking out about no. it and still aren't freaking out about well, it. Because but the, the, yeah, Egyptian. right. And this is something I, I saw in an article and believe it was in the New York Times a, a few weeks ago, where they were talking about how they wanted to, to claim that historically historians in the Greco-Roman period, and I know we, we've already talked about the sort of problematics of that particular phrasing, right, in, in part one, but the, the claim that historians never saw Egypt as part of Africa, but as a gateway to Africa, but that is a modern construction, a, a modern attempt to excise that part of the world from, from there. And so I think this goes back a really long way, but anytime you see overt or explicit white supremacist discourse um, on websites or other places, they'll, the first thing they'll point to is, you know, they'll ask the question, well, what has Africa ever contributed to civilization? Um, so that's sort of part one of it. The other part is, is that then, then Cleopatra, because she is a world historical figure, and there are very few world historical women figures from this ancient past that people can sort of look to and lay claim to. I think that's one of the things that elevates her and the fact that she is from a place that is such a multicultural hotbox for thousands of years, right? I, my friend Dimitri Nakasis one time in a conversation with me referred to the ancient Mediterranean 
as, as, a, as a churn, you know, sort of this churn of cultures, right? Everything sort of comes in and mixes up and then sort of moves out. And the Nile is a similar, you know, part of that world. And so things move up and down the Nile. And so I think you have her positioned in this place that everybody wants to lay claim to because of the deep history, its wealth, its access to different, different parts of history because she's a woman. And because by making the claims, because of this construction of Western civilization as actually an outgrowth of the breakdown of the concept of white civilization, um, it allows people to lay proxy claim to whiteness, particularly in the early part of the 20th century when Greeks and Italians and uh, people from the Mediterranean, generally speaking, were excluded from whiteness. So it's kind of like the United States and Russia having a proxy war in Afghanistan where they don't have to shoot missiles at each other directly, but they're going to be shooting the missiles in a different place. So it's like it's kind of safer. So we can talk about something at a distance, talk about something that means a lot to us, that makes us so angry that we don't know what to do, but it's like a step removed. Yeah, I mean, and you think about not too long ago, there was the big controversy of the BBC, Troy Fall the City, with a casting of a of a Black man as uh, Achilles. And that really, like when, when, when Mai was talking about some of the comments that were made to her, that I, I wrote an article on that where I basically mined the comment sections articles <laughs> about that um, show. And it's the same vitriol. Like, well, what would you do if you cast a white man as, you know, as as Shepka Zulu is like the or Martin Luther King were like the ones they would always go to, right? Uh, so yeah, so I think it's part of this much bigger thing. Um, we can talk about whether this counts as cultural appropriation at a, at another point. I'll let I'll let Maya jump in here with her her thoughts. I endorse everything that Rebecca has said, and I, I I want to add in the sort of contribution of say two figures to this kind of discourse. One is the Martin Bernal's contribution with regards to Black Athena and the Afro-Asiatic roots of, say, Greco-Roman civilization and the backlash to that. Um, can you, can you then, give us a bit of background, Maya? Because a lot of people may not know. Yeah, they might Martin not know Bernal, that one. Black Athena, like a little, I know I'm putting you on the spot. You, you started are. it. So <laughs> like, you know, what, what, what's the, the synopsis more or less? And we, we can all come up with this together, but yeah, British. Cool. He's a white, he's a white British man writing in America. He was a Cornell. Oh, I got it mixed up. Yeah. 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 But he's a soci- sociologist as well. So. Um, and, a, and a sinologist, right? Expert in China. Like, exactly. Yeah. And so some people within the, the, the classics discipline were slightly kind of hooked that he wasn't even within that discipline. And I think it was just over 30, 30 years ago. And essentially, he's just claiming that there are African origins to Greek civilization. Well, yeah, it's, it's not African origins. What the basic argument is, is that he's, he's building off of an earlier sort of 1970s Afrocentrist position, which is an attempt to reclaim history from white supremacist backlash. So we have to sort of Stolen legacy is George James, George James. Yeah, yeah, James. yeah. So the idea was that, and you'll see it phrased this way, that the Greek civilization, because it was held up within Western civilizational dis- discourse and white discourse as the foundation and the origin point of, of civilization itself, right? Or of all the things that were great and good, democracy, freedom, you know, blah, 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 that they wanted to argue that everything that was good about Greece was actually stolen from. And, and then that scholars in the 19th century suppressed that knowledge that, that, that the Greeks took all of these things from Egypt. 
Uh, and so that's where they they he they claimed there was an ancient mile that the Greeks like recognized that everybody that they're taking stuff from is it's all stolen from Egypt, and then that that was suppressed by scholars, and that they wanted to then it, the scholars who were promoting the Dorian invasion, Aryan whitening of the ancient Greek world, and that then his goal, Bernal's goal, was to bring it back. And I, I think it's also important to put this within the context of. The person that the scholar that he's actually writing against was one of the only black scholars in the field at the time, a guy named Frank Snowden, who was as part of his own work with the U.S. government and his own history with the field. He wrote a famous book called Blacks in Antiquity and another one on Before Color Prejudice, where he argues that blackness in antiquity wasn't stigmatized and there wasn't prejudice about it. So he's trying to reinsert people we would call black today into the narrative. And Bernal saw him and he actually, I don't know if he used the phrase, but it was brought up in discourses about him uh, that he referred to Snowden as a quote unquote Uncle Tom, as someone who was helping support the white superstructure by claiming that the ancients weren't racist and, and sort of all these things. So it's actually a really super complicated thing. And a lot of scholars today have jumped on the, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm reading Bernal and I'm going to promote Bernal because I want to help promote scholars of color in our field without realizing that he was a white Ivy League dude. Like, you know, jumping down on one of the actual black scholars who worked at Howard University. It's <laughs> sort of all, the whole, whole nine yards. So, yeah, so it's super complicated, but it, it, it still has an impact. And I think that's what, where my wants to sort of bring up is the, the impact, continuing impact of it today. Well, that, that's it. I mean, you know, certainly it shouldn't be taken wholeheartedly, his arguments, and there have been extremely erudite responses to his argument to say, well, actually, it's not as sound as he thinks it is. But what that sort of opened up really is a discussion about the kind of whiteness of our field, which is absolutely true. And with respect to how do we talk about the ancient world in, in a way that is inclusive and, you know, sort of proactive and to promote things that are not just about the Greeks and Romans, but also the kind of cultural exchanges that were happening with their neighbors and the influences that their neighbors were having on the Greeks and Romans and exactly who are the Greeks and who are the Romans. Who are Romans, because, right? Exactly. Because you know, you have such a diversity of identities in 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 that concept itself, then it, yeah. it just becomes extremely complicated. But also when we're thinking about our own our own modern thinking, that is also kind of in this framework of our own geography, right? So we're thinking in a very limited way of the geography that we know today. I think it's really important is that Bernal was wrong about many things. What he wasn't wrong about was the whitewashing of the field and the suppression of these histories of other, uh, of, of non, those claimed by Northern European people as their ancestors. Like he's not wrong about that. He's wrong exactly. about everything. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, no one is, you know, like, no one's always right about everything. Without sin, without sin, right? But but to, to to get back to that kind of geography, because I think that is really important too, is that the, that was much more fluid in the ancient world where we now have border controls and, and so forth. And we have these categories of boxes of where we put people, where we put nations. And it's this idea of like, okay, who's white, who's black, who's brown, who's, you know. And then we are putting geographical categories in that, whilst the ancient world was actually far more fluid in that mm -hmm. respect and far more fluid in the sense of ethnicity and the way that we think about race and the way they think about race it's it's, it's very very different and the but in the end it's all about 
Am I right? Who gets to claim the antiquity now by who they are as an identity? Who's allowed to claim well, yeah. it? Do you see it that way, Mine? Who claims that identity? Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. As somebody from an Ethiopian Eritrean background, there is this narrative amongst Ethiopians that they claim their heritage and identity to the Sodomaic tradition, right? That came about in the 1200s and 1300s by the uh, particular dynasty named after Solomon. And they claim their dynasty back to Solomon and Sheba, which is as old as you can get, right? And that, in a sense, is their own identity. That is tapping into what they think and want to project to the world of who they are. So they want a piece of that to contribute to their heritage, to contribute to their cultural, and to contribute to the power that they had. So we have so much, shall we say, this kind of mix of myth and reality. And the, and and what's interesting is I, I give you the Ethiopian Eritrean example because this is not new. Because then you also have, as Professor Jo um, Quinn has eloquently put in her in the search of Phoenicians, you have this modern Li- Lebanese people. You have modern Tunisians who also want to tap into the Phoenician identity, Phoenician heritage. So in some respects, that kind of tradition is so important to modern ethnic groups. But the reason why it's important is because with these people, they have been marginalized politically, socially, economically, globally in some respect. So in a sense, this is part of a, a much wider and more complicated than saying, okay, well, you know, Cleopatra, why are you casting her as black when, you know, she should be this and that and the other? It's this sense, and let me just come back to why Cleopatra is important in this uh, argument and, and blackness. That is very different of how the descendants of African slaves with respect to how you know, in the States have interpreted African um, history and African heritage and why it's so complicated when you have people who are African-Americans who have had a very complicated past, shall we say, and the fact that they, you know, their ancestors have been enslaved, they've been taken from their lands. And so it's really, I feel that, okay, if they want to take Cleopatra as part of their heritage, Fine, you know, it's the same as, say, you know, how Ethiopians and Eritreans feel about the Rastafarianism movement that was that came out of Jamaica, who looked towards the Emperor Haile Selassie as this divine, you know, being because they looked to him as this kind of, okay, there's Ethiopia that's never been colonized and, you know, he came to Jamaica and it rained when there was going, there was, you know, a drought for a long time and it rained when his feet touched on Jamaican soil and so forth. They want to claim to Ethiopia, you know, and it's that kind of need to perhaps tap into that ancient history, that ancient civilization, because in a sense that we feel displaced in a modern society. Again, I'm going to try to bring another element to this. Bonnie Greer, a couple of years ago, to, came to Oxford and she was extremely eloquent, uh, an American who has spent most of her life in Britain now. And she ta- talked about the British Empire and it's the kind of mythos um, of the British Empire. And now it's re- reaching a kind of tipping point. They're finally looking to the mirror 
and realizing, okay, you know what, the press weren't that great, you know, as the economist, you know, let's break down that narrative. And we talked about the image of Africans amongst Europeans, but the, we talked further than that. It's also about those Africans who left Africa and the different perspectives that they have depending where they came from in Africa. So that is reflected in the movie Black Panther, where I, <laughs> although I really, really enjoyed it, had issues with it because it did not represent, say, the Northeast Africans. It had this kind of homogenized kind of potentially bits of Western Africa in this kind of imagined, you know, sort of idealistic narrative. And I felt, well, actually, you know, Africa has 54 different countries. And, you know, if Nigeria can have 500 different languages, imagine as a continent, the different languages it has. And you're, what you're trying to do in this film is project a certain image of that, which has been taken by the descendants of African slaves from predominantly West Africa. So there is this kind of need to tap into certain historical events and, you know, sort of uh, mythological events from a sort of a certain Black perspective. Yeah, and, and I would, you know, I'd like to, you know, maybe bring up the Greeks, <laughs> uh, since oh, I'm actually oh, studying, <laughs> yeah, since I'm actually sitting in Athens right now, um, and you know, because the first knee-jerk reactions that you see, and I think this is one of the reasons why the whole, you know, the the Egyptian government response sort of um, took took off took me uh, more best prices because the, the initial knee-jerk response is always, oh, she was Macedonian Greek. Well, let's start with the obvious that in many periods of antiquity, Macedonians were not considered Greek. I, I don't know if you guys know of this one, but one of the fights you know, for 17 years, the Republic of Northern Macedonia was unable to have its name because the Greek government at the UN put a hold on it. They had the northern part of Greece here is, is called Macedonia, the, the region, um, and they didn't want these nationalist claims to start to be flying across the borders and everything. And so it took 17 years to negotiate this. Um, uh, during this whole period, of course, you have these sort of like the, the northern part of Greece um, I was traveling through Greece in 2018 and the north and you would see signs that were like, you know, Macedonia is Greece and, you know, sort of all this sort of stuff and, and flags everywhere. Um, but the coup de grace was when the mayor of Athens put a statue, very badly made, by the way, it's like hideously done, a statue of Alexander the Great of Macedonia in Athens. Like Demosthenes is rolling over in his grave. Ancient Athenians are, you know, crying. The Macedonians conquered them. But, but Rebecca, so, you're hitting you... on the most important point of this discussion, which is that those who become imperialized, who become, yeah. who are occupied by an imperial force, whether it's yeah. Alexander the Great, whether it's whoever these Macedonian Ptolemies are, yeah. whether yeah. it's the Persians, well, the Persians are a different discussion, <laughs> but, or the Romans, <laughs> but, or, or the Brits or whatever it is, but it's so, or the Arabs, it is so easy to then identify with yeah. that yeah. conqueror, because that yeah. was what was demanded for success, social well, and you know, and I, success. And I, and I think we want to throw in here is that, of course, a lot of this fighting uh, over this, of course, emerges out of the, the Greek response to the financial crisis and the way that the Greeks were treated as, even though they're members of the EU and European, as they were treated as other, right? They are the internally colonized part of, part of Europe. And you know, so we can't ever forget that when when Greeks take claim of Cleopatra and and Alexander and these other things, it's in a response to a British, German, Dutch sort of northern Euro French, you know, northern European 
claims that have been made historically on their own culture. I mean, remember, Greece becomes a country and they immediately are given a 16-year-old Bavarian king named Otto who, like, was just a puppet for everybody else. And it wasn't until 18, I think, 48 that they had their own democratic constitution for the first time. But it's it's kind of cool because it's similar to to Britain having been, you know, we have the the rapes of Boudicca's daughters and Boudicca fighting for her own freedom war against the Romans. And yet every elite British child goes to his public school to learn Latin until quite recently become good Romans. Exactly. And we don't even see that. We don't even see, oh, we of British extraction are using this Latin alphabet that has been imposed. It's very hard to see thousands of years in the past into that kind of occupation and and figure out identity. And is it a choice? Is it how it's so messy. It's it's dealing with things 100 years ago, but it's also dealing with things with occupations yeah. that are 700 years ago, 1,000 yeah. years ago, 2,000 years know, ago. But, you know, and I think and I think we want to sort of, you know, because because Mai was talking a lot about the sort of the the modern dynamics and things. And the first thing I do when I teach my Greek history class is what's a Greek? I'm teaching it again in the fall. And I'm thinking the first thing I'm going to have them do is actually read a chapter on the formation of the modern Greek nation state. So that they understand that Rhodes wasn't part of Greece until 1946. Crete wasn't part of Greece until 1913. Like these, this thing that we call Greece today didn't exist until very recently. You know, there's the, the, the 1922 population exchange, right, which was a devastating humanitarian crisis created by, you know, European powers and, and, and the Turks in order to sort of an attempt to create a, a modern, pure Greekness and a modern, pure Turkish identity, Islamic on the one hand, you know, and Orthodox on the other hand, how religion gets wrapped up to, into this. And all of those things, they build them all off of, right? They're ancient, the, 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 the landscapes that are around it, because I think we forget, those of us particularly stationed in the United States, the landscape is is the ancient landscape, right? It's everywhere you look. It's it's You can't pick up a stone without like finding the remains of the of the previous of the past right here right so the people who are on the land on those geographic spaces of course are going to feel you know and jordan you brought up italy in a in in the chat like right italy's a modern nation it doesn't exist it's so late right it's later than greece even right it's like 1870 or something right so in short we're we're taking these this nationalism which is a huge trope yeah. in in the world today um, yeah absolutely. and we're imposing this nationalism back into antiquity to claim yeah. pick and choose but claim what it is we want to manufacture power yeah and and thus even the egyptian government gets involved in a silly little yeah, Netflix yeah. documentary that no one should pay any attention. well and not even a documentary it, it calls itself a docudrama yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I can't make my way through it, to be quite honest. I, I, so, yeah. I, I tried, but I had stuff going on in the background. Like, I, I, I tried to watch it just because I thought, well, if you're going to talk about something, then at least mm-hmm. watch the same. same right? so. And so I, I, I have to say, I left it quite late. It was only the last couple of days and I watched it and I managed to get through episode two. And oh, my goodness, I thought this is terrible issues. I have issues with the actual sort of acting and the kind of representation it's it's just uh, it could have been done so much better yeah. they um, leaned heavily into the anthony as anthony as drunkard you know most <laughs> i'm not berating the actors here but you know a lot of the actors i recognize from british you know tv series you mm-hmm. know it's like brookside and 
<laughs> did standards and so forth. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, they've landed this really big, you know, Netflix. So career ender. <laughs> but I, I found it, it's just so unbelievable. That's, that's the thing. You know, it didn't strike me as a as a as a good film on on its own merit you know I mean I I absolutely value on the uh, academic contribution by um, Professor Shirley Haley she absolutely knows what she's talking about but I just thought you know it could have done without the dramatization yeah yeah yes yeah well I think we brought that up in part one the idea of why do we need this kind of dramatization live action sequence maybe that speaks more to like netflix audiences and they don't but i don't know if it has to do with the, with the with the success of vikings right like vikings was like yeah, really successful so. and so now everybody wants to do it and hmm. see if yeah i don't know but so going back to one of your points and this is a point we brought up last in part one as well this idea that we you know in articles that talk about this and when they talk with scholars like you all we keep saying don't project our conceptions of race, ethnicity back onto the past. Going back to both of your scholarship in the field, how did the ancients see race and ethnicity? How would, say, a person in Alexandria have viewed Cleopatra? And part two of that question is, does it even matter for the discussion? Because I don't think it does. You know, we can bring up, oh, we don't know who her mom is. Maybe she yeah, was yeah. Egyptian. Like, does it actually even matter? Would people care? Alexander wouldn't have cared, I doubt. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and 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 I may have different perspectives on this particular question. The the first question, because there are scholars approach race differently when they talk about the ancient world. The way that I approach race, um, the simple definition is the categories are not race. Whatever category you put someone into, that's not race. Race is the actual system that makes those categories meaningful, right? Race is a, is a structure that takes people, puts them into categories for the purposes of hierarchy and oppression. That's right. If you aren't talking about oppression, then you're not talking about race. But the, we use these categories, and, and I see the, the debate over Cleopatra and sort of all these times, we, Black Achilles and all these other things as a way to deflect from the fact that race is really about oppression and prejudice and, 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 and those sorts of things. And so we saw, we, you know, people will use this terminology of race. Oh, we're talking about race in antiquity. We're talking about blackness in antiquity or whiteness in antiquity. And that's a red herring. It's, it's about the systems. So we do have instances of race in antiquity. I, I have an article coming out that actually argues that we do. I think do. we do, but I'll, I'll uh, let, yeah, I'll jump in. Yeah. There. I mean, but, but for, for example, I point to in the ancient city of Athens, they had a very strict uh, system for classifying people according to their citizenship immigration status. So it's called metoikia. And basically, this is a system that was designed by the Athenians and evolved over the course of, of decades to ensure that there is a population so, this, so that when slaves are in, when enslaved people are freed, they go into this population. When an immigrant comes, when a refugee group comes, um, when an, a child is born out of wedlock, um, a child is born to an asymmetrical marriage between a citizen and a foreigner, um, they go into this group. And these people um, they can be sold into enslavement, right? Um, my colleague, Jackie Murray, basically puts, puts these ideas like if, you, if your humanity is alienable, then you fall into a racialized group. Those whose humanity is 
alienated are the race group, right? So and it is it is an identity supremacy model. Yes, that it's we an are identity very supremacy model. With in the United but States. it's not about skin color. It's not about even. It's very rarely even about biology because ethnic identities. And and my, you can you can push back on me on this one, but most times when we see um, what we call ethnica, ethnica are related to where someone had their citizenship in the ancient world um, or their ethnos. Um, and ethnos is a looser definition, but it's usually uh, cultural practices like like marriage and inheritance laws, religious cult practices. Greeks didn't identify as Greeks as their primary identity. They might have identified that way in, in tertiary level, but their their primary ethnic was their their polis, or in the case of Macedonia or Thrace, you know, sort of these larger regional groups. The Romans are the ones their citizenship was their identity. That's how you became a Roman was Roman citizenship. So descent has can have it, but it's often imaginary kinship, not real kinship. So so these things are are much we understand ethnicity, I think, in the modern world more. And a lot of times these categories that create would fall under the header of ethnic identity. But we call it race because we want to obscure the fact that race is actually the system oppressing people as a result of the, what, what category we put them in. So that's that's how I sort of approach it. And 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 why I try to make I actually, unlike some of my colleagues, try to make a very hard line between race and ethnicity when we talk about antiquity. But you just brought up that skin color played no role in this. And so they did recognize that people were physically different because that's just a fact of life. But they had environmental theories to explain why skin colors were different. They had descent based theories for why skin colors were different. They thought in some instances, Egyptians are called black. Sometimes they're not. They had a range of colors. Odysseus is called black. People from the Black Sea are, are, have been call, are called mm-hmm. black. The, the Colchians, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, people from India. Herodotus has this ridiculously awful hypothesis that people from southern India, what they called southern India, but so not, not doesn't match onto modern India, but from southern India and from Africa were both had black skin because they had black semen. And Aristotle's <laughs> like, this is not true. <laughs> easily testable <laughs> hypothesis <laughs> awkward to test that hypothesis but testable nonetheless um, right so they had other theories for why people looked physically different um, and there was prejudice for for people's differences but it doesn't align to ours and that's not what we call race that's not what the ancients would have called race or what we should call race um, is the rec- the recognition of physical difference should not be race in antiquity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my what's your opinion well, um, I think Rebecca brings up certainly, you know, many, many scholars of this discipline's interpretation of that. I think perhaps we don't really do it justice in some ways because we are using modern terms to try and make it more understandable, perhaps. Maybe that's our own fault for trying to think about race and ethnicity in the ancient world just by that sentence. I'm applying the terminology race in there and absolutely Rebecca is is right here where there is just so much fluidity when it comes to how the ancients thought about ethnicity with with both regards I think I would probably concentrate more on ethnicity and try to perhaps talk about that my work in say Greek and Roman literature which mainly focused on the fiction in the the, the novels that emerged between the first century AD and fourth century AD um, talks about multiple identities, hybrid identities, as coined by Homi Baba and a few other post-colonial um, thinkers. 
is that even though skin color is mentioned, particularly in the novel Heliodorus's Ethiopian story, and I'll come back to the word Ethiopian, by the way, quotation mark, there is this sense that everyone's really in a kind of equal footing, you know, that there is a mention of black um, uh, royalties. There's mention of Egyptians, there's mention of Indians, etc. But they are all in, in, in the same sort of mix in this kind of uh, Mediterranean uh, melting pot. Um, Northeast Africa, Greece and Rome and, you know, so many different other countries and nations playing into that. Now, what's really interesting about the novelists themselves is that far from one, most of them lived outside Greece. So, for example, the third, fourth century writer Heliodorus, he says he's from Emesa, he identifies as a Phoenician. So you can say he's Syrian, he taps into his Syrian identity, he taps into his Greek identity, but he also taps into his Roman identity because he's writing under the Roman Empire. So you've got this kind of multiple identities and in a sense, his characters too tap into multiple identities. So his main character, Carrie Clea, who is born white from black Ethiopian uh, royalties, she taps into her Greek identity, she taps into her Ethiopian identity. So there is a sense of this kind of fluidity and performance of this kind of ethnic identities that I just want to kind of emphasize. And then there is also, when you think about, okay, well, how, how do you define these ethnic groups, et cetera? Well, I think it's really hard to define them. As Rebecca pointed out, well, it's, you know, you could do with a kingship, you know, people in the ancient world, if you are an, an elite, you want to hark back to say, you know, the, the, the hero of the Trojan war, the heroes of Roman history and mythology and, you know, so the more that you place your identity in the past, the more kind of elevation that you have, the, the lineage that you have. It doesn't mean that, you know, you are lesser or greater or whatever. It's just that kind of linking back to this kind of mythologized figures actually helps your cause. So, you know, I'd, there's people like Memnon, for example, who is described as an Ethiopian, but there's no difference between him and Achilles in that way. You know, we have Andromeda, who is often whitewashed in art, shall we say, but she is supposed to be, you know, sort of an Ethiopian princess. She, she's princess. whitewashed in Heliodorus. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's where it starts, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, but, but, but as, as a plot twist, right? It's a, it's a plot twist. <laughs> I'm hit. You spot the plot twist. I don't, I'm not going to tell anybody what the plot twist is. It just is. <laughs> but yes, exactly. There is in that story, Memnon and, and Andromeda and Perseus play quite a, quite a significant role in that. And so, you know, the idea of attaching a particular race to ethnicity in the ancient world is extremely problematic. And that's why when we come to Cleopatra, it's very difficult to just put it in this category. But then I, what I wanted to also bring up is this kind of portrayal of women from the ancient world. So actually what is more striking isn't really about the skin color. It's more about how women are seen in the ancient sources. So <laughs> the way that uh, Cleopatra, but also other queens, other royalties, other, you know, high status in female individuals, and you can see that in in how um, Persia is described, 
how other queens and, and so forth are described in ancient sources, in Greek and Roman sources, is that there's a lot of anti-women stuff there. You know, if you are highly educated, if you can speak a multiple languages and you are independent and you are wealthy, then and, and you are a woman, then you are problematic. The fact that Cleopatra, the description is just so similar to all the other descriptions of high, high, notable ancient women. So it's not, I think, it's, it's, it's more kind of issue that there is the kind of anti-female rather than the kind of skin, skin tone, really. It's just how ancient women are seen in ancient sources. And these sources, may I remind you, are written by men. And they are. Yeah, and, uh, and, and we should we should point out. I, I point out because I I wrote a book on non elite women um, in in yes, the ancient exactly. world. That, yeah. that that the that the discourse isn't just elite wealthy queen women. It's Strange. if you are a woman and you are foreign, or if you are a woman and you work, um, you are automatically a sex worker. <laughs> um, not only not, not in in the scholarship, and so I, I want to point out that this is how scholars interpret these ancient sources because on the comic stages in rhetorical exercises, in courtroom speeches, in literature, in poetry and everything, women are immediately demonized um, and they are turned into hypersexualized or sexually available beings. Um, and then scholars interpret that as oh, they're sex workers. Mm -hmm. And so our own, you, on top of the actual elite male author, <laughs> you know, diatribes against these women as being, you know, not respectable, not to be respected. These are women who can be, you know, you can rape them and then toss some coins on them. And then, you know, they asked for it kind of discourses that you see in, in courtroom speeches and in, and in comedies and things like this. Or these are women, these intelligent women, you have to you know, strip them down and bring them down to a lower level by, you know, sexualizing them in these ways. Then you add on the modern layer of gender bias and, and sexism that you see starting in the 19th century scholarship of, you know, all of a sudden these these highly educated women are courtesans, you know, <laughs> and the model of a 19th century demimond or something. Um, and this is and, something and, that's and, happened to Cleopatra as well. And, and it happens to Cleopatra. Yeah. She's part she's part of that very long tradition that goes back as far as, you know, Greek literature exists, like go back to Hesiod. Go back to Simonides. Circe, you can go, go back to Circe. Yeah, you know. Go back to any woman mentioned in an ancient text, uh, with few exceptions, and you know, you know, Penelope even has sort of her moments, right? And you get this element, and Cleopatra is—that's the tradition that she's in. She's in the tradition of not just women, but particularly when we get into sort of fifth century Athens and other places, foreign women, um, Medea, right? <laughs> is the sort of paradigm for this in some ways. They are dangerous. And they are, you know, deadly. They are um, highly sexualized, you know, highly sexualized. Right. And they're, they can't be trusted. And then, of course, so Horace's poem, which is sort of the, the sine qua non of how we're, we, the sort of Cleopatra as, uh, as femme fatale and everything. Um, and so it, did it, you like that. your brief watching of the Netflix documentary, did you feel that it was a feminist retelling or re I mean it's a second it's yes, a second okay, wave feminist second wave feminist retelling yes because it feels very to me it was just the regurgitation of the same old narrative it's still the very male gaze the male perspective but like oh she carries a sword too and rides on horseback and she wasn't historically contextualized very like at all mm. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't like what's her name, Schiff's book on Cleopatra, but I, I that much, it, it, it feels more sensationalizing. But like, you know, Jane Draycott's or Cleopatra's daughter, and then we can Roller's book on Cleopatra. Like, I mean, he's a historian of the, the actual ruling families and the laws and the, and the structure, social structures of those periods. So like, they didn't even put it into the historical context that she okay. existed. They kept her in the sort of realm of our mythologized understanding mm-hmm. of the world that she inhabits. That would make me mad as a, you know, as a Greek or an Egyptian or whatever, you know, because I do understand that Egyptians, they live in that landscape. They, they live amongst the ruins, right? And, and it is their past too. I don't, I don't think we should take away that this is, you know, the past of the people who inhabit these spaces, but it's not only their past. Or is it anyone's past? I got an email from some reporter in Middle East reporter. Like, I can't remember. It was like the Middle East Journal or something like that, asking me if I thought that this Netflix series was a form of cultural appropriation. And I'm like, anytime any of us do anything with any of these ancient things, we've appropriated it. Like, we're not them. It's all, mm-hmm. it's all appropriation. And appropriation is a neutral term. It actually isn't a negative or positive term. It's the result of it that, that is negative or mm-hmm. positive. But anytime you make any, anyone, whether it's the Egyptian government, whether it's the Greek government, or, you know, Greek TV or Egyptian TV, whether it's Gal Gadot, whether it's anyone who's making money off of Cleopatra is appropriating that story. When you talk about second wave feminism, I want to touch on that because it's a it's a way of making a woman into a man in a sense of taking the patriarchal structure, not questioning it, just taking that whole cloth and then making her powerful within that patriarchal structure, which is masculinizing her, giving her the sword, turning things on their head. But it's a very binary sort of power rebalancing which is which is very but that, problematic. That that is actually also I know this is problematic because it's it's done by a male author. So there's a a, a character Persian um, princess in Hidedoros's story. Oh, Arasaki. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love her. Um, <laughs> and there are definite parallels between uh, uh, this Persian princess and. Cleopatra, there are definite parallels. There's this foreign queen in Egypt, in Memphis, and she has this power. She's highly intelligent, very hypersexualized. And but for her to exist in in a very male-dominated role, she plays the man. And there are references, you know, sort of to to her kind of playing the male role, which are in parallel to how Medea is seen as well. So there is this yeah. kind of masculine qualities put on these very independent women so for them to navigate these spaces they have to take on masculine qualities and that is done by ancient writers it's just quite puzzling that is now done by female modern scholars you know and and modern Modern scholars scholars. do you see where i'm getting at is this kind of like well look you can understand you know i mean the sort of Heliodorus doing his thing and ancient writers doing their thing in, in how these women are seen, you know, and sort of playing around with a kind of very sort of binary image of good versus bad woman, you know, the kind of Penelope and then you've got your Medea figures. But it's this kind of like, okay, well, let's give them masculine qualities to explain their success, to explain how they are. And so for it to then reemerge in the Cleopatra, well, docu-series is kind of disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's, what's interesting about it, too, is that we have a lot of evidence for lots of amazing things that Cleopatra supposedly was able to do. One of them was not wield a sword. 
I don't know where they got that from. I really don't know. They got it from Xena Warrior Princess because we all love Xena you know, back oh, in the day. A lot of the a lot of the recon- recreations, whatever the dramatizations, were very puzzling. Um, <laughs> well, I think Wesley, one of the the only like actual Egyptian scholar who was interviewed as part of the docudrama, mm-hmm. he he said that he had you know, talk to them about the barge, like, because we have evidence of what these barges look yeah. like. Like, we know that these pleasure barges of, you know, ancient royalty were like massive, like sort of like extravagant things. But he said that they, they said, well, we have to take out what you talked about because we've already filmed her coming down. <laughs> we've already filmed the barge scene, right? So they couldn't actually put in the historically relevant information into the series. Um, I mean, now because, we're just hitting on documentaries or docudramas or any sort of filming. Right, right, right. Which like, never <laughs> consults with the experts before they write before they do this it, stupid right? ass script. Instead, they wait and then they consult and they're like, oh, just tell us it's all OK. And then we say, no, this is like European Game of Thrones. What the hell are you doing? And they're like, but it's fine. It's fine. Right. And so there's this that there's it's I mean, I get that there that there is Egyptian pain and hurt that being constantly newly colonized. And now we have a new colonization through media of what Egypt should be and how it should look. And it's it's an incredibly hurtful thing to put it into an actual filmed lens with color because it makes so many people, children, young people, people who are learning about their history, it, it sets that in their mind as a reality. Well, of course, scholars must have been consulted and this is the real thing. And mm-hmm. so I think that's part of the very strong governmental pushback mm-hmm. against this. I this think the government pushback, though, a lot of that, I, I, I think in my brought up earlier, is this really hard push that we've seen, particularly in the last two decades, to to create a fissure between North Africa and quote Oh, yeah. OK. Um, and, the, and, and, that, but, and yet, but and I just read a New York Times article today that was all about the live exhibition. And that oh, yeah, modern yeah. Egyptians are very upset about being, being associated with Black African culture. And and here's why. And went through carefully. St- I mean, there could have been so much more said. You could write volumes about this. But let's hit on that, Maya and, and Rebecca, this idea of what the hell is going on in Egypt right now that makes this so hot. What is this fissure between North and South? Maya, you brought up the word sub-Saharan and what a bogeyman that is and how it's used or misused how are we to understand egypt's place in this very large continent this very diverse continent and what's happening now to help our audience understand you know what what stakes the egyptian government has in it what stakes this this docu-series has in it what stakes we have in it i mean what who's claiming and why and what is this mess that we're that we're dealing with in terms of african identity I'll just add quickly to that. Why can't there be multiple owners? Why yeah, does it right. seem like there can only be one? Yeah. And I find... Because, because indeed, it's the Highlander rule of, of, of famous people. I think it, there can be multiple owners. There are multiple owners. I think if you talk to a government Egyptian guy, the owners can be white or they can be a very North African looking person, but they cannot be black. And and then why? But then, you know, when the last discussion we talked about the Afmosa series, which was completely shut down because the actor who played right, right, Afmosa right. was too light skinned. And so but so it's you know, it's it's there are gradients to all of this and it's very complicated. And when does it reach a tipping point where something has to be canceled? 
And yeah. And and so that's kind of but but what's also behind this? I want to bring one thing up before we get going, just to sort of situate us with the term sub-Saharan. I don't know if you guys are aware, but the term sub-Saharan doesn't exist until the 1960s as a, as a phrase. And what is happening in Egypt at the time is it's the Nasser uh, regime. So I, I, the, the emergence of that term is part of the modern geopolitical uh, discourse of separating off the oil-rich Middle East and particularly Egypt within, within uh, its own political context. But within the context of European and, and US, U.S. geopolitics and how they want to intersect in the period, that I think we need to, we need to see that the emergence of this, the fissure emerges in the 60s as part of, of that geopolitics. And so when we talk about sub-Saharan, all of our ancient texts put people we would call black or, you know, the sort of, my brought up the, the, the Ethiopian term, which is a sort of catch-all in some of our texts for people with black skin. They, they're, they're there in, in the North at the time. They exist. They're indigenous. Herata says they're indigenous. So to, to what the ancient Greek, because remember the ancient Greeks, didn't know Africa existed. Once you get to the Sahara, you enter into the torrid zone and no one can live there. It's un- uninhabitable once you get down to the, to the, to the, to the south of the Sahara. So they, their, their Africa was, was only the north and there are clearly, you know, indigenous people there. So this term sub-Saharan is a product of 1960s geopolitics. And so I think and civil rights movement and the desire to sort of create a, a black identity and, and, and black liberation. So I want to put that there just so people know that that term is not a neutral term that just sort of emerged out of nowhere. It emerges out of Egyptian um, civil war and nationalism and out of Black liberation movements uh, and wanting to make a hard line between yeah. them. So, yeah, I mean, the Nigerian-born Chike Onyeni, who chaired the Celebrate Africa group, there was a campaign launched to drop the sub-Saharan African phrase. And he says, we feel that it's a racist term and it's something that Africans should not accept. Right now, there's no other continent that you have sub anything. You have Europe, you don't have sub something Europe. You have America, you don't have anything sub about America. You have Asia, but it's only the same people who have been been referred to as subhumans are being referred to as sub-Saharan Africa. And And this came out in 2010 and I... You know, I have to admit my ignorance until, you know, it was highlighted by a compatriot, a scientist called Bethlehem Tehle. I had no idea the kind of racist context this this phrase has. And I think in, it, it really does need to be dropped. It needs to be sort of taken out of context. You know, we can't apply it to our kind of discussions about African civilizations and keep using the word sub-Sahara with it being so problematic. The other thing that I wanted to point out is there's a, an article written by Rezan Idris in Africa is a country journal about black pharaohs. And this came out a couple of years ago where there was also a backlash against, you know, Nubian pharaohs. And, you know, there was this sort of a huge batch of Egyptians um, to, in, with respect to kind of, again, you know, blacks as in like, I, quotation marked, trying to take over Egyptian heritage, Egyptian identity and Egyptian history. But then we are to all talking about the erasure of Nubian history and heritage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is this kind of complexities, this, these narratives that are complicated 
these yeah. are complicated ancient history and you're trying to kind of you know sort of rigidly place them in this kind of modern politics that's what it is isn't it this yeah. modern politics of identity and who who belongs where who does what um, so, so, so the title of my book that I'm finishing is called Ancient Identities, Modern Politics for a Reason. Oh, great. <laughs> I did not get a prompt for that. Can I just say? <laughs> but, you know, Heber, in your first episode, she mentioned Moon Knight, which is one of my favorite films. Yeah. And this is where you've got a franchise like Marvel, which is now finally doing something inclusive and, you know, sort of telling diverse stories and not all superheroes are white and where you could do a film well made where you do have the experts and also where people feel connected to that film another film that completely undoes that is 300 and also prince of persia where yeah. they had a white american playing the, the role and you can understand the backlash with that when you again have these constant sort of and it's not even with 300 it was so problematic that i don't even know where to begin and but it, it has driven the kind of toxic masculinity that we talk about in terms of the far-right groups and how they sort of reimagine themselves as these kind of spartan white warriors against these you know de demonic demonic yeah demonic version. yeah you know and 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 again i will come back to one of the figures that i mentioned earlier which is edward said and his kind of absolutely brilliant book orientalism in the late 70s where he's talking about you know institutions participating in this idea of the east and east in this aspect it's not just the asia it's sort of talking about the he's talking about egypt a, a lot as well. <laughs> exactly right. and that, that there are institutions modern institutions who are complicit in that kind of narrative of um inferior you know sort of non-western societies and this is how we have to place the kind of docuseries or documentaries or films about certain figures like Cleopatra or, or certain figures like, you know, sort of Persian kings and, and, and so forth. So you could do something intelligently and more inclusive in, in a film like Moon Knight, or you can do something really bad like 300 or Prince of Persia. But the, just because you get black directors in there and you have black actors in there, it doesn't make that ducky series you know, the kind of, I'm not saying valid, but it is problematic of how they portrayed it. I would say Netflix knew exactly what it was doing because it's there to, to make money. Yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of alienated so many people. It's, you know, bought out all the races to the yard. It's, you know, kind of, there's a lot of Egyptian anger and I can completely, utterly understand that. There's also a lot of black anger because there is so much anti-blackness that has come out of this. And then you have this kind of, you know, history of Egyptology and the kind of mm -hmm. colonial mindset of that and how, you know, modern Egyptians see themselves in this kind of, you know, history of colonization. So, yeah, it's really deeply troubling of how you do something well without alienating so many people. One one thing I find really interesting in the reactions to this that are often hyper-racist and and accusatory is this idea of a kind of colorblindness, a willful 
imposition that we are colorblind. It would be like, you know, having a white actor play Martin Luther King in which you, and, and Rebecca, you touched upon this earlier, that there is an idea that some lineages have more value than other lineages, that, that it is more valuable to talk about your connection to a certain mythological figure, perhaps, than, than another. And we could talk about ancient Egypt as being oppressed and colonized by a Greek occupation that created a kind of apartheid yeah. in a way yeah. as well, where you have two, two set, and yes, people of flexibility and were able to choose different identities and all of these things. And you do see that. But in the choices that people are making, you can also see the apartheid that goes unspoken underneath the the radar. And well, right. I mean, you, you got taxed leave... differently based on whether you qualified as a Greek or not, right? Right. And you had better and, privileges. And so these these things, you know, where people are really trying to survive, they have these long um, uh, scars of, from wounds left behind long ago. And we don't, it's, it's very hard to find, okay, where this wound starts with the Arab colonization and this wound starts with the Greek colonization. And this wound starts with, you know, and, and it's how does one layer all of these things? And Egypt, having been uh, buffeted about by empire in particular, it, it's it, but e but keeping its nationalism all the while, or if we don't want to use that word because it is a heavy word, keeping its separate identity while part of a Macedonian Greek empire, well, part of a Roman empire, well, part it was, of and it was Persian, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, how, how do we, how do, how does Egypt negotiate being separate and Egyptian while imperialized at the same time? And I think that's the core of what it is that we're talking about. And then when a Netflix documentary comes out, there's another colonization that's imposed by an American media. And then, and, and the, all of this hurt comes forth in, in sometimes a horrific way extraordinarily racist, but it's it's the hurt and the pain that one yeah. so, remarks so I, upon the most. We have to remember that Egypt is also a modern nation. What was Egypt in antiquity is not what is Egypt today. The name Egypt is a Greek word. The name, you know, Greece is a Roman word. These are none of these things are are part of the 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 ancient world they want to lay claim to. They're fragments of it. And in little pieces, you know, like when you go to an archaeological site, you do a survey, you know, surface level survey, right? And you see like little pottery fragments all over the place. And you pick them up. And that's basically what people are doing is they're picking up these fragments, and then trying to put them into creating something that conforms into what is the sort of modern identity that they've constructed. But the identity is not the ancient Egypt today is not ancient Egypt. Greece today is not ancient Greece. Italy today is not ancient Italy. You know, China today is not ancient China. <laughs> None of these places are what they were a thousand years ago. I mean, look at maps, you know, just since the 19th century, but look at, you know, a map of Eastern Europe since World War One. It's, it's, the, the, it's a continually evolving and changing thing. And so when we, when we say Egyptian, it's like, that, that's, that, that is, you know, it's a loaded term. By just using that name, they've made a claim on, on a legacy, which Fine. I'm, I'm, you know, obviously, I mean, Ethiopia, as you mentioned, as my mentioned earlier, used that name to lay claim to a legacy. This is how modern identities are formed, is that you try to find something. This is why the United States has no name. It's like the United States of, you know, what the hell does that mean? We don't have an ethnic identity as our name. So I, I, I think it's like this 
I, I honestly would wish that one of the things that would emerge out of these continual, you know, wash, rinse, repeat racist episodes is that people start to realize that it's the fool's game to even try to lay claim to these pasts that, you know, Cleopatra manipulated her own image all the time. Like the way she presented herself to different audiences that we see in her iconography and everything, she didn't have one sense of self. Um, that she wanted the world to see and want to, and performed. So why isn't it okay if lots of modern groups of people do the same thing with her? Um, that that's like why can't we come to to the realization that these ancient pasts aren't singular? Well, and who's laying laying claim to Egyptian identity right now? But the Egyptian government and these things have happened in the world before. You know, we can remember the Persian Shah laying claim to antiquity. Yeah. We can remember Mussolini laying claim to Roman yeah. antiquity. These things, well, but, but you do can think about like well, they or do you not can think about well. the Turks, the Turks mm -hmm. who reject that Greek antiquity. Like it's it's all it is is leverage for diplomatic you know missions. It's not and it's usually a last want. ditch sort of attempt, yeah. and we're we're seeing it now, and it's it's pretty blatant, and it's it, it may yeah. not go as well as one would hope. But we'll <laughs> yeah. we'll see. We're here living that history, right? Yeah, yeah. And and people say the past, you know, studying the ancient past is not relevant and they want to every, be from the Every day of my life, there's a new article that I have to, like something in the popular press or something that I had to incorporate it into my scholarship. It's like, Al, how is this not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. No, but I think it's really important. Uh, a lot of people would say, well, why do you put all the effort to try and respond to these, you know, horrible responses and remarks and you know, this kind of backlash, I suppose. I think it's really important that we're, we're present as scholars. We are present in the conversations. Social media has really changed the dynamics of that kind of academic community and public community in the sense that, dare I say, it's kind of democratized in a way, <laughs> the conversations, whilst before they were in the kind of, they exist in their own separate spaces. But then that brings its own problem, which is really, you know, sort of certain groups will dominate conversations on social media and, and what have you. So we talk about the kind of responses that we've had, the racist responses, et cetera. But then, you know, as Hebert actually put it, there are multiple Egyptian responses to the documentaries, not necessarily just what we're kind of reading from the comments that we get. And from um, the government, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and there are responses that are that can't put themselves out there because yeah. it's more than social media dogpiling they will face. There, there are actual dangers they could potentially face. Yeah. So people are very afraid to speak out and speak their truth. But exactly. yeah, it's, it's exactly. so funny how a simple Netflix documentary can turn out to be something that helps us it, but, uh, not uh, to uh, fight uh, a proxy war, but yeah. to discuss but I, all these complicated sure. political issues and, and how we're dealing with them. Yeah, but I do, I do also want to emphasize that when people of color who are scholars, they tend to receive far more backlash than oh, if yeah. you were a white scholar. And also if you were, you know, black and female, <laughs> yeah. that yeah. kind of massage noir, shall we say, level. But I still think it's really important to try and engage in these kind of conversations because, you know, we, we'll just leave it as standing. And, and I just, 
I personally can't let it lie. <laughs> I've brought this up a point because I, I co-author and work a lot with my friend Jackie Murray, who's a, a you know black woman, and she refuses to engage in in the public discourse. So she basically says, "Like Rebecca, you go talk about this thing because I'm not going to put myself out there." I did manage to to pull her out of the of the hiding to co-author a piece on the closing of Howard's classics department because of her expertise in the history of, of education um, and, and classics and in America and, and black, Amer- black classicisms. But she, she won't do it. And, but it's one of the reasons why um, I do get a lot of, I, I do get hate email. I, I get equal opportunity emails, <laughs> like white supremacists, Egyptian nationalists, Greek nationalists, African-Americans. I got, you know, Katrine and I had some guy from, I think it was Nigeria, wrote a hate piece about us that didn't even read the article that that Katrine wrote and that she included some of my material on. So we get sort of equal opportunity. But one of the reasons that I, I had agreed to do a while ago where we talked about Cleopatra and Sub-Saharan and all this sort of stuff, a YouTube channel that unfortunately, Dick Barksdale, who ran it, he passed away. But we I did it because I, it's safer for me to do it. And why would any of my colleagues, Black women especially, go into a, a space occupied mostly by sort of nerdy video gaming white boys? Yeah. So we're not only talking about <laughs> we're not only talking about defense of a nationalism that's that's yeah. fought with great vitriol, but we're talking about defense of patriarchy that yeah. that really objectifies and brutalizes the women who dare to speak out. And yeah, but especially and- especially our our like. Like Mai says, the our women of color. Yeah. So it makes sense that Cleopatra is there at the center of at the, all at the of center this. of it, right? Yeah, swirling around her, and who you know, she's she's there looking down. She's like, "Yep, this seems about right." And you have no idea who I am or what I am, but all of this, all of this nastiness and ridiculous tracks. I mean, just totally tracks. Just look at what the Romans wrote about me, and it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, none of this yeah. has gone away. So yeah, yes. I think that's a beautiful ending summation of, <laughs> of our discussion here. I want to thank you both for your willingness and openness to come chat with us today. It was a really great discussion. and I'm sure our, our listeners have learned a lot. We'll link some of your resources so they, if they want to read more of your work, they can reach out that way. But yeah, thank you for, for talking with us. Well, Thanks for no, having us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I'll see you guys later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com afterlives and get access to our private Discord server, where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archeology span news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. 
You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.